Please open your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, the scripture passage in front of us this morning is the final paragraph of Mark chapter 10, a story that I hope is familiar to many of you if it's your first time hearing the story of the blind man outside of Jericho named Bartimaeus. It is my extraordinary privilege to introduce you to him. I love this section of scripture and I've been eagerly anticipating it since it's been in my sight for quite some time. And it's this passage that leads us into the Passion Week of Christ, the triumphant entry, the trial, the mockery and beating of Jesus, his cross and the resurrection. And so... This is a special place in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm very eager for you to get to know Bartimaeus. The title of this sermon is Vision from a Blind Man, Vision from a Blind Man, Mark 10, verse 46 to 52. Let's start by reading it. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, And a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him on the way. This is the very word of the living God. I don't know if you've ever had a close relationship with a person who's visually impaired in your family or maybe a friend in school. Blind people aren't as common as they used to be because of great advancement 
in medical care because of surgeries and knowledge about how that complex camera, which is the human eye, functions. But if you've ever known a blind person, it helps you understand something of this story in Mark chapter 10. Phil Riken, who some time ago was pastor of an historic church in Philadelphia called 10th Presbyterian. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the pastor, James Boyce. After James Boyce died, Phil Riken became the pastor until he was called to be the president of Wheaton College, where he's been for at least 20 years. He had someone in his family who lost their sight. And he wrote about it this way. My brother-in-law is blind. He was not born that way. He used to have almost perfect eyesight. In fact, as an officer in the United States Air Force, Allen used to fly bombers for the Strategic Air Command before becoming a commercial pilot for American Airlines. But in December of 2000, he came down with a life-threatening case of bacterial meningitis. As his condition worsened, he was airlifted to the University of Texas Medical Center in Dallas. At one critical point, Allen was legally dead and had to be resuscitated. He underwent emergency life-saving surgery to relieve the pressure on his brain and spinal cord. He was in a coma for six weeks before finally coming back to consciousness. By the mercy of God, his life was spared, but the damage to his optic nerve is irreparable. And barring a miracle, he will remain blind for the rest of his life. We are all saddened by my brother-in-law's disability, but we do not treat him with patronizing pity. He has many reasons to be thankful. His body is strong. His trust in God is secure. And his family is growing in godliness. He travels widely and has many opportunities to testify to his faith in Jesus Christ. But if Alan could wish for one thing in life, it would be to regain his sight. Jesus met a man with that same desire on his way to Jerusalem. And I would love for you to see Bartimaeus today. And more than just see a touching story of Jesus' final healing in the Gospel of Mark. This is the ultimate example of Jesus' power as he submits himself to God and is used by the Holy Spirit and is able to perform miraculous deeds, authenticating his God-given authority and deity. He's demonstrated over the, the natural forces like the winds and waves. He's healed lepers. He's healed a, a woman who had been suffering her entire life. He's opened other blind eyes before. He's cast out demons. He's shown his authority and power and divinity. And in this final account that Mark gives to us, this, this ultimate account before Jesus will step into a 
irreversible sequence of events that we're all very familiar with as we enter into the Passion Week account, starting with triumphal entry, before that moment happens. And in this section that has a determined focus on what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be his disciple, after all that we've been through, listening to the rich young ruler come so close to being a follower of Jesus and the disciples in their confusion and in their self-centeredness, not understanding what Jesus was calling them to do as they followed him imperfectly and still there as recently as the last paragraph clamoring for preeminence and honor and glory as followers of Jesus and and now as they continue to follow their master and Lord as he moves towards Calvary's hill as he faces this intense night of prayer in Gethsemane and the, the flogging that will be before him and the betrayal by his closest friends and the pain and ignominy of crucifixion before the glory of his resurrection, Jesus will impart sight to one man. And he's the only man of all who are healed in the Synoptic Gospels who's identified by name, Bartimaeus. And the vividness and color of Mark's narrative as he describes not just the geographical setting, which is, is remarkable, notable, but this man and his name and his father's name and the reaction of the crowd. And so I want you to see Bartimaeus, but more than that, I want you to see what Bartimaeus saw. I want you to see what he saw before his eyes were opened. And have that same sustained vision after his eyes were opened. And so the question is, what did Bartimaeus see? And what did he not see? And when his eyes were opened, what did he see that he had never seen before? And how would that shape the way that he walked? The text begins in verse 46, they came to Jericho. Now, Jericho, you know, Grace Church child, because Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. And the walls came. Come on, sing it. (laughs) A tumbling down. That's actually old Jericho. Just a few miles from the city of Jericho in Jesus' time, a beautiful city, New Jericho. Along the same road, but old Jericho had been inhabited. It's one of the, Jericho, the entire area, is one of the most continually populated cities in the world. It's, it's ancient heritage, well documented in the pages of Scripture, as well as in archaeology and secular history. The city was founded likely 9,000 B.C., but over time as the city grew and then as the Israelites and their conquest uh, took Jericho, uh, it would, over the centuries, move to another place, just kind of old city, new city, and the new city would be developed into an absolutely fantastic desert oasis by a king of Roman connection, a Hasmonean kind of 
connection, a man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great would turn this new city of Jericho into an absolutely phenomenal place, a place of, of great beauty, a place that was known for roses before Pasadena ever took the title. These immaculate gardens were the pride of, of Herod and his son who uh, would continue to build on this city and, and continue to kind of make this oasis in the desert. It's an interesting place because it's about 20 miles from Jerusalem, but it's almost a, a 3,000 foot climb to get from Jericho, which is almost 800 something level uh, feet below sea level. So it's, it's this oasis-like concave area that leads to the holy city along this well-traveled path. And so the trip from Jericho to Jerusalem was well-known, well-traveled, avoided at night for danger, and uh, normally used by so many worshipers and uh, for commercial purposes, people moving uh, themselves and their stuff between everywhere else and the holy city of Jerusalem. It was a place of respite, a place of, of beautiful palms and, and roses. But Bartimaeus didn't see any of that. Immune to the beauty that surrounded him, shrouded by perpetual darkness, he was a blind man in a beautiful place. But the conditions for someone without sight in those days or any disabled person would have been absolutely brutal. There was no social services for disabled people. There was no programs in school for a blind child. There was no help that was provided by the system in order to care for those who were less fortunate or of less ability. And this blind man would have had to find himself to a place where he could beg for his sustenance every day. If he did not beg, he would not eat. If he did not solicit people as they traveled along, there would be no food for Bartimaeus. And so he would have had a very difficult life, a beggar's life. But he did find himself in one place of advantage because he put himself along the road that went to the holy city. And as was the Jewish requirement and custom, uh, pilgrim travelers would make their way uh, from the north down to the south in Jerusalem and from all directions, but along this particular road through Jericho. And these people going to celebrate God, to give thanksgiving and alms and sacrifices and to uh, do what was required of them in their God-given religion would have passed by this man. And, and some would have been merciful to him, giving him perhaps some bread, some of their lunch, occasionally a coin. And it's in that way that Bartimaeus would have sustained his life, his placement alongside that road, the only place where he could beg 
for his survival. When they came to Jericho. The story is told in in the three synoptic gospels. And it's told a little differently each time. Different point of view, different accents. And we've seen how Mark likes to focus on one part of the story, right? Because in Matthew's account, there's two blind beggars, which makes sense. Birds of a feather flock together. Two blind beggars probably could help each other. But one of them is apparently of significance and interest to Mark. The fact that he mentions his name and the name of his father Many have inferred that he must have become a person of renown in the early church. That Bartimaeus would have been known not only by Mark and his informant of this gospel, Peter, but by the earliest disciples as they uh, had their fledgling existence in the early church in and around Jerusalem. And so Bartimaeus, by name, the son of Timaeus, was a well-known Augustine in his comments in the, in the early church. He, he thought Bartimaeus was someone who came from significant position before he fell into his despairing condition. But much of that is conjecture. We just know that he was a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, and he sat by the road. Passover is coming. That's the time of the year it is. And Bartimaeus would have known that, the sights and sounds and conversations that would have been of interest to all Jewish people, celebrating God's greatest act of salvation in the history of the Jewish people as he he led his people through the leadership of Moses and by pillar of cloud and fire uh, out of Egypt and, and into the wilderness, that Passover feast that was a memorial of God's act of deliverance and salvation that was to be done all the way through their history as a reminder of how God had been good to them and delivered them from slavery and from their their bonds in Egypt and how he moved them to this land that they presently occupied in part, but eschatologically they knew someday would be their land by divine right and promise. And so Passover was a reminder of all the good salvation that God had worked among the Jewish people. And Passover was here. This is partly why there would have been such a large crowd. But large crowds are are a regular occurrence in the Gospel of Mark. We've seen them over and over again. Large crowds were beginning to follow Jesus as his popularity swelled, and Jesus is no longer putting his finger on the lips of the disciples to shush them about his identity. That has happened in the past, but now there's no holding back. The swelling crowds, the interest in Jesus, in his claims, in his miracle work, and so some of this busy, bloated road is travelers going to Passover to celebrate with family and to uh, 
commemorate God's salvation. And, and others are, are wondering about the identity of Jesus. Some close, like his 12 disciples. Others on the, on the edges of that group. Others just maybe a crowd that's interested in, in following the scene that Jesus is causing. And they don't realize, even the disciples barely realize where they're following Jesus to at this point. They know they're going to Jerusalem. It sounds it's going to be dangerous. Jesus has warned them. He's explicitly told them that he will be killed there, but that is not in their realm of thinking. And they follow him along with this crowd of people, the final leg of the journey to Jerusalem, unknowingly following Jesus to the cross. They don't realize they will not pass through Jericho again. They will not travel with Jesus again. This is it, the final road. Having him, having seen Jesus heal an uncountable multitude of sufferers, in Mark's account, they have no idea that this is the last healing miracle they will see him perform, the last that Mark will record. And as this great number of people swell the roads with pilgrims and travelers and disciples of different levels of commitment, all heading towards Jerusalem, they would have passed many beggars, many paralyzed, the outskirts of leper camps, and blind people as well. This crowd, the swelling crowd in verse 46 would serve as the eyewitnesses to testify to what they saw that day on the Jericho Road, an unforgettable exchange with a named blind man. And I find it unforgettable as well. That's just the setup. Look at the story, verse 47 when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene. He hasn't been called that very often in Mark. Just a very human identification. That's his neighborhood. That's like Duncan of Albuquerque. That's like pits of the IE, Rancho Cucamonga. Who's from Rancho Cucamonga? Jesus was from Nazareth. It was his his hometown up in the north, and his fame had spread. And, and you didn't have to have eyes to see it because he was the talk of the nation right now. The Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders, even the governing officials had inquired about the identity and intent of Jesus, and the focus and intensity of their concern had been elevated. There is plots afoot to kill Jesus of Nazareth. He is a wanted man, and there is a whole movement against Jesus that is not a secret, but his swelling popularity, according to the Gospel of John, is preventing them from making their move. And now Jesus is headed to an even more populated place at a time of festal celebration and remembrance it's a holiday weekend and Jesus is heading and the word is spreading because wherever Jesus went, miracles happened. 
And Bartimaeus hears that Jesus the Nazarene is coming. First on the outskirts of town, and then through the town, this procession, and then on the edges of the town as he moves towards the ascents. Jesus with his disciples, sometimes arguing with each other about their preeminence. Jesus with his disciples, sometimes pulling them aside for a conversation. Jesus with the crowd, sometimes uh, pulling aside to, to teach them and preach to them and minister to them, often being interrupted by people who are desperate with uh, a daughter who has died or uh, an, an infirmity that is bewildering to them and incurable. And, and everyone is seeking after Jesus and this festal gathering as they move up the road uh, would have been had an extra level of, of intensity because of Passover. It was their practice, the Jewish people, when they would take this route up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was at elevation, we're way down below sea level. We have this big climb to go. Peter would have been holding his side, <gasps> huffing and puffing, because you know how I think about Peter's obesity. For generations, they'd been singing the songs of ascent in the Psalter. And so this clanging, noisy crowd with animals and children and, and loud people and merchants and, and religious people and devoted and traditionalists are all traveling together. And then Jesus' followers on this, this crowded road described by Mark in verse 47, 46 and 47 would have been some of them singing or encanting or, or chanting these famous songs of ascent, these songs for pilgrims, these songs for travelers, singing things like, I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. Psalm 120. Or they'd sing Psalm 123. To you I'll lift up my eyes who are enthroned in the heavens. Our eyes look to Yahweh our God until he's gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. These are the songs traditionally sung by the travelers. They'd sing Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in Yahweh are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. The mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. They'd sing Psalm 122, songs about David's throne as they moved towards David's city, as they climbed up Mount Zion, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Jerusalem that is built as a city, compacted together, the tribes of Yahweh, an ordinance for Israel, the thrones of the house of David. They'd sing of former times of captivity and sorrow and future times of promised restoration Enjoy. They'd sing songs about their families. Psalm 127, the Lord's blessing and giving them a tribe and children and inheritance. They'd sing the blessedness of everyone who fears the Lord. Psalm 128, they would sing uh, Psalm 130 with an expression of hope and God's forgiving love. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Yahweh. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. A song all about Mercy, mercy. 
It's what Israel had always known of God. Since he identified himself to his people in Israel, as he showed himself to Abraham and to Moses and to the patriarchs, God had always shown himself to be a God of loving kindness, a God of holiness, a God of mercy, a God who would never break his promise to David, Psalm 132, another song of ascents, David's behalf. For the sake of David, your servant, the Lord has sworn to David, I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. How good for brothers to dwell together. And then the final song, behold, bless Yahweh, all servants of Yahweh, who serve by night in the house of Yahweh. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless Yahweh. May, the, may Yahweh bless you from Zion, who has made heaven and earth. Songs on the tongues of pilgrims traveling on this crowded road would have hit the ears of Bartimaeus. Songs that cried about David and God's loyalty and faithfulness to David. God's unbreakable promise to David. Songs that sang about the throne in Jerusalem. Songs that sang about Mount Zion. Songs that praised God for his mercy. How cognizant is blind Bartimaeus to all of that? Probably not that much. But I'm just imagining the scene. Because Bartimaeus wants one thing. He just wants to see. When he heard, because that's all he did was hear, it was Jesus the Nazarene. Here James Edward comments, what Bartimaeus lacks in eyesight, he makes up for in insight. Forty seven says, Bartimaeus began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he would have had to say it loud because the crowd is noisy, because the disciples are selfish, because Jesus is, is walking among all the pilgrims. And beggars don't make progress by being polite. Um, pardon me, if you have a moment. I'm in an unfortunate condition here. If I could talk to you, I'll be here in the shade. I mean, they can't see where the crowd is. They just hear it. And so he's used to crying out. The word cry out is the word that, it's a normal word in the Greek New Testament. It's, it's to shout, it's to cry, it's to moan, it's to wail. It's Jesus on the cross. It's Jesus crying out to the crowds. It's, it's all sorts of of shouting. It's a, it's a loud word. It's an emotive word. This man is crying out and he's saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In the original, it's son of David. Jesus, have mercy on me. Maybe son of David in Mark's minds, 
is going to resonate in the next chapter in verse 10 as he's composing this beautiful story with historical accuracy and veracity, but theological profundity. Chapter 11, verse 10, the crowds will say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Well, before the crowds can call him David's son, one blind man with incredible insight says, son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Use Jesus, use David Yesu, Eleson May, use David Yesu, Eleson May, would yell out among the crowd. Phoneo crying out. And they heard him. Everybody heard him. He's making a scene. And so that same crowd of disciples and pilgrims respond in verse 48. Many, many, a favorite word of Mark, many were sternly telling him to be quiet. Same phrase used in chapter four when Jesus tells the waves to shut up, the storm to be silent. And these unsympathetic people can't hear themselves think or walk straight because this wild voice of this desperate man keeps screaming, son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. And so there's more rebuking and more yelling in response to this man. Many of them say, be quiet. rebuking him, and he responds, verse 48, by continually crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And many keep rebuking him and telling him to be quiet, and he keeps saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And it's here we have just a moment to reflect on that insight of faith. It's faith that Jesus connects this healing to. It's the faith of Bartimaeus. And faith is not just mere intellectual arrival at something. It's not just a light bulb above your head. There's all kinds of things attached to faith. And one of the most common and important aspects of faith is desperation. Desperation. Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for they'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. Bartimaeus does not have a theological argument. He doesn't have a sophisticated case from redemptive history. There is no liturgical order to what. Bartimaeus is saying uh, he's got a few things right. He knows the name of Jesus. He knows the identity of Jesus as David's son. There's all kinds of messianic undertones to that. He is obviously aware that Jesus could can, will, be able to heal him. And the beginning of Bartimaeus's followership of Jesus is not one of composition and intellectual consideration. It is one of pure, unfettered desperation. 
Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Maybe you don't understand the Trinity or the doctrine of inseparable operations yet. Maybe you haven't completed MacArthur's White Whale book, you know, Biblical Doctrine. Maybe you dropped it on your foot and had to go to the hospital. But I wonder if your faith is at the point of desperation because that's a wonderful starting point. I don't want to minimize any Christian doctrine, but the complexities of Christian doctrine aren't the starting point. It's what we heard Pastor John preach about this morning. It's an awareness of our hopeless condition, of our radical lostness. And here we have an example of a man who understood that he could not help himself. And this is a beautiful example of sola fide, of faith alone, because he's got nothing else. All he can do is yell. And then maybe two of my favorite words in the whole Bible, verse 49. Son of David, have mercy on me. That's him continually, repeatedly crying out. And the only thing that stops this cry are these two beautiful words. Jesus stopped. It's awesome. Jesus stopped. He stopped. He he just was still. He heard him. And he responded And Jesus stopped. The Savior paused for this man. Jesus of Nazareth put a halt to his intensified, unbreakable pace towards Jerusalem. His face still set like flint. Jesus stopped. And said, call him. Same word that the blind man was doing. This calling, this shouting, this. Jesus hits the brakes and says, call him. It's an imperative, a command. I don't know if it's directed to Peter or hopefully to James and John. Or to just anyone listening All the people surrounding Jesus, call him. Call him here. And the crowd obeys. They called the blind man and said to him, Tharsai. It's such a weird word. It's all over the Bible. I always wonder about this word too. I spent way too much time looking at it. It's a word that's mostly used by Jesus. I think only used by Jesus in the Gospels. Except for here. 
the disciples or the crowd, whoever he's talking to here, grabs this word that Jesus had said throughout the Gospels. He always says it. It's translated a bunch of different ways. Take courage. Be of good cheer. Matthew 9, 2, Jesus says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. It's like a greeting word. It's a comforting word. It's it's a word that has boldness in it, confidence in it, hope in it. Take courage. Be of good cheer. You know I like to get an IV sometimes. Cheer up. On your feet, he's calling you. That's the NIV. Cheer up, come on, he's calling you, NLT. Take heart, the ESV says. Take courage, be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee, King James. Be confident, don't be afraid, come on, he's calling for you, contemporary English version. ATD version, I mean, how do you say that to someone? Has anyone ever told you in your life, take courage? (laughs) Maybe if you're like in a Shakespeare play. Cheer up is maybe close. But these are the same people that were telling him, shut up two seconds ago. And so it's some kind of reversal when they go to Bartimaeus on the side of the road and they say, I think it's okay. or it's going to be okay, or this is good news. Cheer up, take heart, take courage. Come on, he's, he's calling for you. And I wonder if Bartimaeus is thinking like, didn't that same person just tell me to shut up? <laughs> Tharsi, we should say it to each other more often. Take heart. Take courage, be of good comfort. Cheer up. Hymn writer said it, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercies and will break and blessings on your head. When your desperate faith encounters Jesus, You know what it gives you? More faith. More boldness. More courage to take that next step and and walk to Jesus. And so this man in abject poverty, begging all day, every day, with no way for his own provision, destitute and disabled, crying out for mercy in total desperation, Jesus hits the brakes and the crowd stops telling him to be quiet and they say, he actually wants to see you. He wants to talk to you. He heard your plea for mercy. He sees your spiritual poverty. He knows you're blind. He wants to help you. Do you need to see the Savior? He stopped talk to you. They called the blind man and said, 
cheer up. Get on your feet. He's calling you. I love his response. Bartimaeus. If you didn't know him before, you know him now. He's, he's not shy. Not in this moment. He's bold. And, and Jesus stopping and saying, bring him here. And the crowd saying, take heart. Let's go. Get up. He's coming for you. Now you see Bartimaeus' eager response because he throws aside his cloak. They wore at least two pieces of clothing, kind of an undergarment, uh, like a one linen thing, and then they wore like the filson coat, the, the, the outer coat, protect you from the elements, wear hot and cold. It's just a big old coat, and it's, it's mostly going to protect you in the elements and slow you down if you're trying to get somewhere, and he's trying to get somewhere, and so he does not care that he sweated through his shirt. He pops it off and jumps up and came to Jesus. He saw Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, as the son of David, the, the inheritor of the, of the promise to the house of David, the Messiah, the righteous one. He saw that Jesus responded, that Jesus is available. And it's here where Jesus is trying to make sure that we see something too. Verse 51, answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Very familiar words to us. Mark chapter 10, verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Same exact phrase. Disciples who'd walked with Jesus for three years now are asking Jesus for more glory. Prominence, significance, a position of influence. Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Stupid. Arrogant, boastful. Maybe they had a theological intent to it. We talked about that last week. But selfish. And not the way of Jesus Jesus finished that out by saying, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And then our key verse for all of Mark, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here's Bartimaeus asked the same exact question. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, an unusual title. Rabbi, pretty usual. Rabboni, usually reserved for deity in Jewish literature. 
great teacher. I want to see. Someone once asked Helen Keller, isn't it terrible to be blind? She responded by saying, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Here's a man in deep physical blindness with great spiritual insight. Bartimaeus asks for his sight and Jesus mercifully grants it. Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following Jesus on the road. The recovery of Bartimaeus' sight is one part of the miracle. Just one mere part of the miracle. Because Jesus had recreated lots of optical nerves and corneas and all the other stuff in there. He'd healed blind eyes before. And this healing, like so many of Jesus' healings, is not a simple medical remedy. Because once Jesus heals this man, he identifies in this man the faith that provoked this man to plunge his voice into this chaotic crowd and to beg for mercy from the Messiah. Jesus sees that as it is, as far more than just a request for physical sight, but Jesus knows that that is reflective of something in this man's heart, a recognition of his desperation and his need for Jesus, and Jesus transforms this man from a blind beggar into a follower. John Calvin, commenting on this verse, says exactly that. He speaks of Jesus' healing always being far deeper than the physical. Because Jesus heals Bartimaeus' soul. Jesus forgives Bartimaeus' sin. Jesus authenticates Bartimaeus' faith. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. I wonder if this story of the healing of blind Bartimaeus will help you see. Because so much of the language of Mark has about, been about the vision of faith, hasn't it? I see men as trees walking around, the other blind man says in chapter 8. And it's a parable for Jesus' disciples, not able to fully grasp all that he is, still stumbling around in partial illumination and still blinded by their biases and their sin and, and not yet understanding the full message of the gospel, of the reason Jesus came. What will become clarified after the cross and the resurrection is here seen by a blind man, still unseen, and mostly by the disciples, and it's this tenacity and audacity and desperation of faith that solicits this vision. And it will always be that 
if your eyes are opened to perceive Jesus as he really is, as the only savior, as the only remedy for sin, as the one who can and is willing to bring you to God. And so from Bartimaeus, I hope you can see that faith needs this kind of desperation. And I'm not asking you to do anything because a desperate man isn't trying to work for that recognition. He is simply calling out his poverty, calling out his inability, calling out his condition. And it's the tenacity and audacity of this blind man along the road who will not be silenced by naysayers, who will not be shushed by those who are annoyed by his voice. And these simple words compose his request, son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And what we've learned from Mark and what we learn in Bartimaeus' story, closing out this most significant portion of the gospel before we get to the heart of why Jesus came, which is to lay his life down as a ransom. We've learned that discipleship is seeing Jesus, calling out to Jesus, believing that only Jesus can help you. And you need to think like this blind man thinks, if only I could get his attention. If he might see you, you will see him. James Denny said, the kingdom of heaven is not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Desperation is the doorway to salvation. Desperation is the gateway to faith. Ambivalence indifference are faith's greatest obstacles and a sinner's contentment in their sin fosters the deepest kind of unbelief. But desperation, oh yes, hopelessness, that's what leads not to the dead end of despair but to desperate determination to see Jesus and to be seen by Jesus. And so as we scream in desperation, aware of our sin and foolishness, aware of our lusts and failures like that blind man undistracted and undeterred intently focused on having our lives changed by Jesus realizing that the Davidic Messiah has come so that we start out paraten hodan beside the road and we end en hodo on the road That's Bartimaeus. At the beginning of the story, he's said to be sitting by the road. And at the end of the story, he's following Jesus on the road. He goes from outside to inside. From seeking Jesus to following Jesus. His eyes have been opened. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. And when Jesus stood still and stopped in his tracks, when God stopped walking and Bartimaeus threw off his cloak and jumped to his feet and came to Jesus, a beggar turned to a disciple. His eyes were opened. So what is it that Bartimaeus would see? 
He would see first Jericho, the oasis city behind him. As he would join Jesus on the road with this crowd, borrowing a colt, all the colors and fabrics of of coats spread before Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. That's the next thing he would see. Followed by the cleansing of the temple. The opposition to Jesus intensifying the the danger to Jesus and his disciples. And soon, Jesus is teaching about the end of all things and then his arrest and beating and crucifixion and resurrection. I think Bartimaeus was there. And I think he saw it all. And if you have eyes of faith, you will see it as well. And as we finish out Mark's gospel in coming weeks, I pray that you too will have eyes beyond the physical to see the Savior and to be changed by him. Father, thank you for the testimony of this blind beggar. A man who was changed by Jesus and saved by Jesus. A man who is willing to follow Jesus even on that road uphill to the cross. May we also be willing, in Jesus' name, amen.